Section 8 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Kinzer, Madison, Wisconsin. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 4. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Chemistry, Chapter 7. The Phlogistic Period Proper, Part 1. One of the most interesting chapters in the history of chemical science is that dealing with the study of the phenomena of combustion and their interpretations. As Freund observes, it lends itself specially well to the purpose of indicating within the scope of not-too-complicated phenomena how a theory arises, how it is applied, how the conservatism inherent in the human mind is reluctant to give up an accustomed interpretation of nature, even when it no longer answers to the first requirements of a theory that is, when it no longer explains the facts and laws observed in the class of phenomena to which it refers, but how, after all, facts are and always must be strongest, and hence how a theory is finally given up when no longer able to deal with the facts, and how its place is then taken by another better fitted to do so. The effect of heat on matter had from early times been a subject for observation and experiment, which soon led to classification and generalization. It was observed that while some substances are not permanently changed when heated, sand, noble metals, etc., others are, wood, sulfur, base metals, etc., the burning of substances, that is, the occurrence of a permanent change marked by the appearance of flame, great evolution of light and heat, and the remaining behind of ash, naturally arrested attention and the view that substances were combustible in virtue of the common presence in them of fire matter goes back to the time of the Greek philosophers. That the substances left behind when wood is burnt or when metals such as copper and lead are heated were alike called cineres, ashes, bears witness to the fact that even then these two phenomena, outwardly not very similar, the burning of wood and the change produced by heating metals, were already classed together. The name of calces, Latin calx equals lime, for burnt metals, which up to about 1600 was used along with cineres, and after that exclusively, is due to the Arabian alchemists, and suggests an analogy with the burning of chalk, the burnt metal being produced from the metal by the same process as quicklime from chalk, namely by heating. All through the Middle Ages, the idea was retained that what occurs when substances burn with flame, and when metals are changed to calces, is of essentially the same nature, and must therefore be explained by the same cause. For many centuries, sulfur was looked upon as the principle of combustibility, and metals which could be burnt, that is, calcined, owed this to the common presence in them of sulfur. Ubi inis et calor ibi sulfur summed up this view. Becher's terra pinguis had much in common with the fire of the schoolmen and the sulphur of Abertus Magnus and Paracelsus. The scope of the phenomena to which this explanation of combustion applied was extended by Stahl, and the theory of the phenomena of combustion and other analogous processes, which were to be explained by the assumption of the hypothetical phlogiston, was the point round which chemists in general gravitated during the 18th century. Until the appearance of Lavoisier, the phlogiston theory received the assent of most investigators. George Ernst Stahl, born at Ansbach in 1660, devoted himself to the study of medicine and acquired, first at Jena and later on at Halle, to which university he had been called as professor of medicine and chemistry in 1693, the reputation of a distinguished physician and academic teacher. 
when he was appointed physician to the king in 1716, he removed to Berlin, where he successfully strove for the extension of chemical knowledge until his death in 1734. He investigated chemical problems in the true scientific spirit, himself guided by the ardent desire to discover the truth. He was able to draw around him pupils animated by a similar purpose. The most eminent among the Berlin chemists of the succeeding generation studied under him. Even in his own lifetime, the doctrines which he taught, together with a number of valuable detached observations, were widely disseminated by means of his writings and especially by his lectures, the latter of which were published by several of his pupils. Stahl, however, exercised his greatest influence both upon his contemporaries and upon the succeeding generation by his phlogiston theory, which eclipsed all his other chemical work. Phlogiston was defined by Stahl as materia aut principium ignis, non ipsi ignis, and was conceived to be a very subtle matter, capable of penetrating the most dense substances. It neither burns, nor glows, nor is visible. It is agitated by an igneous motion, motu, and it is capable of communicating its motion to material particles apt to receive it. The particles, when endued with this rapid motion, constitute visible fire. The igneous motion is gyratorius su vorticillaris. Heat is an intestine motion of the particles of matter. Phlogiston was a new name for an old principle. We know that the idea of the existence of a subtle fire innate in matter has pervaded physical philosophy from the earliest times. Phlogiston was, as Rodwell notes, another name for the pure fire of Zoroaster, the atechnicon pir of Zeno, the subtilis ignis of Lucretius, the elemental fire, astral fire, sulfur, or sulfurious principle of the chemists, the calor calestis of Cardenas, the sideric sulfur of Paracelsus, the materia calestis of Descartes, and the terra inflammabilis of Becher. The functions of this entity had been varied by different thinkers, almost as much as its name, until Descartes gave them accurate definition. The theory of phlogiston was the theory of the materia calestis extended in a chemical direction. Phlogistic chemistry was Cartesian chemistry. Descartes defined the physical functions of the materia calestis, while Becher and Stahl defined its chemical functions and applied them to the explanation of diverse chemical phenomena. Throughout the writings of Becher and Stahl, we find a sprinkling of Cartesianism. They did not, however, adopt the system in its entirety, but appear to have discarded the second and third elements, and adopted the first as the parent of their own system. The theory of phlogiston was essentially and completely a syncretistic theory. It was built up, as Rodwell observes, of idolotheatry, collected from various sources, and these were cemented together by the particular idolospecos of Becher and Stahl. In this process of syncretism, the merit of these men lay. Their fault was a too hasty generalization. In that stage of chemistry, syncretism was inevitable. Indeed, all theories are more or less tinctured by it, with the exception of those which emanate from a new mode of experimenting, such, for example, as Kirchhoff's theory of the constitution of the sun. A theory proceeds by slow evolution until it dominates or is destroyed, and it was thus with the theory of phlogiston. Arising under the most favorable conditions, it attained full development, became most cardinal, most sovereign, and then fell. For twenty-eight years, it was looking a half-formed thing through the mists of chemistry. For thirty-four years, it was growing in strength and proclaiming its dynasty. For fifty-four years, it was dominant, and it was fully ten years yielding up the ghost. Becher and Stahl were the prophets of a new mode of chemical thought. 
essentially classificatory, systematic, and syncretistic. In their day, chemistry was at the commencement of a period of transition, and they bridged the gap which existed between empirical chemistry and modern chemistry. They did not collect the materials for the structure. They did not altogether construct it, but they designed it and helped in the work of building. Albeit a bad bridge and built upon shifting sands, yet it was a channel of escape from mystic science, and many passed over to take refuge on the other side. To Stahl, however, belongs the merit of grouping together the phenomena of oxidation and reduction, as we now term these, albeit by the aid of a false hypothesis. The addition of phlogiston is equivalent to reduction and its withdrawal or escape to oxidation. The analogy between respiration and the decomposition of animal matters on the one hand and combustion on the other did not escape Stahl, who likewise assigned the chief role in these processes to phlogiston. The value of his theory lay therefore in the interpretation which it afforded of a variety of processes from one common point of view. The simplicity of this explanation blinded both himself and the generation which followed him to such a degree that they left unnoticed all the glaring contradictions between many actual facts and the phlogistic doctrine. Notwithstanding this, however, the latter was not an obstacle to the development of chemistry, considering that chemists like Black, Cavendish, Margraff, Scheele, Bergman, and Priestley, who so greatly extended the science by their wide-reaching discoveries, were phlogistonists in the full sense of the word. Stahl's two most famous contemporaries were Friedrich Hoffmann and Hermann Burhav. Hoffmann, born at Haller in 1660, after acquiring a thorough knowledge of medicine, mathematics, and the natural sciences, practiced first as a physician and then became professor of the science of medicine in Haller, where he ultimately died in 1742, after an interregnum spent in Berlin. His most important work was done in medicine, and in pharmaceutical and analytical chemistry. He combated with success the iatrochemical doctrines of Silvius and Tacinius, which still held their ground with many physicians, exposing their absurdities and showing to what nonsensical deductions such exaggerations led. Hoffman's views on combustion were very similar to those of Stahl. With respect to the calcination of the metals and the reduction of their oxides, however, he expressed opinions which approximate to those held at the present day, believing, as he did, that metallic calces contained a salicidum in addition to a metal the former of which escaped when the calces were reduced. This assumption did away with the similarity between combustion and calcination. These phenomena became indeed rather opposed to one another thereby, and with this the special use of the phlogiston theory vanished. Hoffman was a very voluminous author, and his collected works in six volumes and five supplements, entitled Opera Omnia Physicomedica, 1740-1760, show clearness of style and precision of expression. Melin, in his Geschichte der Chemie, enumerates 122 chemical treatises by Hoffmann. Hermann Burhav was born at Vorhaut, near Leiden, in 1668, where he received his education and became professor of medicine and afterward of chemistry and botany. The 36 years of his residence there were the most brilliant in the history of this university. Looking at his chemical work alone, he is found distinguished in the main as a teacher and for his skill in interpreting chemical facts and the clearness of his theoretical views. He exposed the errors of the iatrochemists and recognized chemistry as a distinct science. He also showed the falsity of the views held by the alchemists. He spoke only of things tested and observed by himself, and spared neither pains nor time to have his observations correct. For instance, the alchemists maintained that mercury could be fixed in the form of a fireproof metal, without the addition of any other substance. 
Burhav kept mercury at a somewhat raised temperature in an open vessel for 15 years without noting any change. So, too, when heated higher in a closed vessel for six months, no change could be discovered. This convinced him that the fixing of mercury was an impossibility. The alchemists said also that if mercury was repeatedly distilled, a more volatile essence with peculiar properties could be obtained. Burhav carried out this distillation 500 times without securing the essence. And so he tested other of their peculiar notions and prescribed methods without obtaining the results promised. And as the methods were still credited in some quarters, he did good service in disproving them and won for himself the reputation of being a most excellent and painstaking worker. His lectures were published first in the surreptitious edition, Instituciones et Experimenta Chemiae, 1724, and afterward corrected by him under the title Elementa Chemiae, 1732. Eleven editions and translations were published in Germany, France, and England. Borhov appears to have concurred in the phlogiston theory in many points. At least he expressed no opinions contrary to Stahl's fundamental views, although he did not agree in regarding the calces of the metals as the earthy elements of these latter. The influence of Stahl's doctrine manifested itself more immediately in Germany, where it received the almost unequivocal support of chemists, Berlin remaining the center point of this theory. Among the men who upheld and endeavored to propagate it, Margraf was the most active. Caspar Newman, born 1683, and Johann Theodor Eller, born 1689, contemporaries of Stahl, were also active adherents of the doctrine in Berlin. Both of them, as professors at the Medico-Chirurgical Institute, were in a high degree active in maintaining and disseminating a knowledge of chemistry. Their own observations were, however, of little importance. Newman made the first accurate observation of the acid obtained from ants, and the views of Eller were chiefly upon subjects of medical physiology and are full of crude speculations. Stahl's pupil, Johann Heinrich Pott, born 1692, improved chemistry by many valuable observations, but he was unfortunate in his explanation of these. He regarded boracic acid, for instance, a substance which he had himself investigated carefully, as consisting of copper vitriol and borax, the results which he achieved were not, as von Meyer notes, at all commensurate with his untiring perseverance, which he showed, among other ways, in his endeavors to prepare porcelain. Although an adherent of the phlogistic doctrine, Pott did not bring forward anything new in its favor. With regard to the nature of phlogiston itself, he could only express the opinion that it was a variety of sulfur. A notable achievement associated with his name was a wide extension of the method of dry analysis, his Chemische Untersuchungen was published in Berlin in three parts in 1757. Newman's pupil, Margraf, was the last of the well-known German chemists of the phlogiston period. Andreas Sigismund Margraf was born at Berlin in 1709 and proved a most able experimenter. Indeed, it is for his many isolated discoveries that he is remembered, rather than for any influence exerted on the general trend of chemical philosophy. One of the most lasting benefits owed to him is the introduction of the microscope as an aid in laboratory work. The occasion was noteworthy. A paper appeared in the memoirs of the Berlin Academy for 1745, in which Margraf stated that small crystals of sugar might be seen with the aid of a microscope upon the finely divided and desiccated roots of the carrot and beetroot. He further stated that this sugar could be extracted by lixiviation with hot alcohol, and added that mere compression of carrot or beet would yield a saccharine liquid, from which the sugar might readily be extracted. 
These observations remain unnoticed until the continental blockade of France in 1806 urged its people to find some substitute for their imported sugar. Of prime importance was Margraff's observations on phosphoric acid, whose principal physical and chemical properties he accurately described. He obtained this acid by burning ordinary phosphorus in the air and dissolving the resulting fleur de phosphore in water, also by heating phosphorus with concentrated nitric acid. Margraff's work on the composition of gypsum was remarkable. He had noticed that potassium sulfate on heating with charcoal emitted the pungent smell of burning sulfur, and as this also occurred when gypsum or heavy spar was substituted for the potassium salt, they too must be compounds of sulfuric acid. One should not forget his introduction of potassium ferrocyanide as a reagent for iron, nor his separation of microcosmic salt from urine. He remarked that it was this salt which contained the phosphorus. With great talent for observation, Margraff united the gift of deducing what were generally sound conclusions from his work. In one point, however, Margraff, like all phlogistonists, was not in a position to do this, although he had himself proved that phosphorus increases in weight by conversion into phosphoric acid, he could not free himself from the idea that phlogiston escaped during the process of combustion, and he could never be brought to see that this conception was an erroneous one although the anti-phlogistic doctrine was brought out several years before his death. Margraff's papers are, as mentioned, almost all contained in the memoirs of the Berlin Academy. Most of them were published from 1761 to 1767 in two volumes, under the title Chemische Schriften. A French edition appeared in 1762. In France, the principal exponents of chemistry during the 18th century, until the downfall of the phlogistic system, were Geoffrey, Duhamel du Monceau, Ruel, and Peter Joseph Macaire. Stephen Francois Geoffroy, the elder, to distinguish him from his less celebrated younger brother Claude Joseph, whose work was chiefly pharmaceutical chemical, was born in Paris in 1672 and helped for some time in his father's apothecary shop. He gave himself up, however, to chemical and medical studies and labored with great success as professor of medicine in the Jardin des Plantes from the year 1712 until his death in 1731. Geoffroy became well known throughout the scientific world by his researches upon chemical affinity, his Table des Rapports, Tables of Affinity, in which the results of his most important observations are collected, exercised a great influence upon the doctrine of affinity. His theoretical views were less idoneous. For example, he looked upon the iron found in the ashes of plants as having been produced artificially during the process of ignition. Geoffroy's views on combustion were in principle those of Stahl, though he expressed himself in the nomenclature of the earlier period, yet there was much promise in his conviction that the different Kelseys were radically different bodies. A real service was rendered by him by the energy with which he attacked alchemistic frauds, subjecting these, as he did, to critical examination in the memoir De Supercherie Concernant la Pierre Philosophale, presented to the French Academy. Geoffroy's treatises were published partly in the Memoirs of the French Academy and partly in the Philosophical Transactions. His long-celebrated work, Tractatus de Materia Medica, shows that he regarded chemistry as a sister science and an invaluable aid to medicine. Henri-Louis du Hamel du Monceau, born 1700, died 1781, of the school of Lemery and Geoffroy, spent his life in Paris, where his versatility gained for him a high reputation. His sterling work was not by any means in pure chemistry alone, but also in physics, meteorology, physiology, 
botany and particularly in chemistry, as applied to agriculture. Duhamel's great achievement was the differentiation of the two alkalis, soda and potash. The composition of ordinary salt had hitherto eluded research. Stahl, it is true, believed one constituent to be an alkali, and an alkali quite different from potash, if one might judge by differences in the crystalline form and solubilities of their respective salts. There was a vagueness about his work, however, and it had met with little recognition. Duhamel published a paper in 1736 on sea salt which put the matter beyond question. In it, he first showed that the base of salt was not in earth, for the addition of potash caused no precipitation, then that its several salts all differed essentially from those of potash corresponding. He laid stress, too, on the fact that the further one moves from the sea, the less the quantity of the new base and the greater the quantity of potash in the surrounding vegetation. Subsequently, while describing minutely the differences between the analogous salts of these bases, Duhamel mentioned the yellow and violet colorations which they respectively give to a colorless flame. While Duhamel worked mainly as an academician, Guillaume-François Ruel, born 1703, died 1770, was occupied in teaching at the Jardin des Plantes, and some of his pupils, particularly Lavoisier and Proust, attained the highest eminence. At the same time, he was also busy as an investigator, as many admirable observations and conclusions drawn from the latter show. Ruel fixed the meaning of the term salt in the Memoirs of the Academy for 1745 from a far more general point of view than von Helmont or Tacanius had done. The composition of a substance alone was sufficient to tell him whether it belonged to the class of salts or not. Salts were produced by the combination of acids of every kind, with the most various bases, and in addition to neutral salts, he drew a distinction between acid and basic ones. With views so lucid as these, Ruel was far ahead of his contemporaries. Ruel's cours de chimie, according to Uffer, exists only in manuscript. End of section 8 Recording by Sandra Kinzer, Madison, Wisconsin.